This week's episode is a classic Agatha Christie style whodunit, so I'm expecting M's legendary David Suchet Poirot impression to be in full swing. The little grey cells Hastings, they are percolating. It's like the legend that is David Suchet is in the room with me now. A most intriguing proposition, Hastings. Could someone impersonate Mon such that a simpleton like yourself... Dead steady on, old man. Hastings, you are the classic moron, always asking of Poirot how did the chap die, and why was the horses not winnowing in the night? Always Poirot tells you, use the little grey cells, Hastings. Yes, but you keep saying facts secret from me, Poirot. How can I think the problem through if you refuse to give me access to the evidence? Ah, uh, but Hastings, you are just, uh, what do you English call it? Ah, an audience surrogate. And if the audience knows all the clues, then they might guess the identity of the murderer before Poirot. And we cannot have the reader think they are smarter than a Belgium. Listening to this exchange from behind the curtains in the room, I began to reflect on my relationship with the great detective Lord Morrissey Morrissey and the way he treated me. Was I also some kind of audience surrogate? And what of our next caper? Hadn't our last adventure ended on something of a cliffhanger? Who is this speaking aloud from behind the curtains? There was no time to lose. I say, Poirot, who was that chap who just defenestrated out of the windows? Hastings, you the little grey cells. Must Poirot tell you everything? No, no, the other one. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. My name is Josh Edison, still locked down in Auckland, New Zealand, but free as a bird, presumably, in Zhuhai, China. It is Dr. M. Dentith. I am indeed free as the bird. I want to fly away, a, 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 a. Natalie Ambrulia, classic. Do we have much in the way of an of a, of a introductory preamble thing this week? I don't, I don't have anything myself. Well, they they claim to have identified the Zodiac Killer. Oh, the Zodiac Killer, yeah, I just read that before. And that's one of those things I thought, maybe we could mention it in this week's episode, but I actually think given it's kind of breaking news, and I suspect Mm. the next week is going to be a case of, oh, we already suspected this guy, or there is good reason to think he wasn't the Zodiac Killer whatsoever, maybe it's really next week's news. Yes, so, so watch this space. Or not. Um, I mean, or it may not, turn out to be a completely nonsense story, mm. and we never By mention this time it again. next week? Mm, who knows? Um, this week, though, uh, on a similar vein, we have a bit of a, a, bit of a murder mystery for you. Um, and uh, if, if there isn't anything else to say, maybe we should not keep people uh, in suspense and just jump straight into it. What do you say? I say murder she wrote Is this okay from like a copyright linguistic standpoint? No, not at all. Let's play let's play the chime. Play our actual sting. Ah, that's that's much less copyright infringing. I like it. So th- th- this week, it's not a it's not a masterpiece theatre week. It's not a what the conspiracy week. It's just a good old fashioned conspiracy topic week. And this week's topic is the cat's meow, sort of. The thing the cat's meow was based on. We're going to be talking about the death 
of Hollywood producer Thomas H. Ince. Thomas H. Inch? Who was in Thomas Ince. H. Inch? Which is a question that will be on the lips of almost every single listener, because even if you know of the cat's meow, and you know of the principal characters of the cat's meow, which is, of course, your Charlie Chaplin and your Randolph Hearst, and every Randolph time I say Hearst, Randolph Hearst, I want to put in Randolph Scott from Blazing Saddles, the actual presumed murder victim, we'll get into that, we'll Thomas H. Inch, basically is a non-entity now, even though his death was actually really, really big news at the time. Mm. Yes, now almost a almost hundred years after the fact, all Mr. Ince is really remembered for as being the guy who may or may not have been murdered. Um, but he did definitely die. He is known he for, did for definitely being die. dead. Yeah, he, yes, he, yep. he is dead. He's, he not, be... he's not the immortal Thomas H. Inge. Mm, no, he would be 140-something years old right now. Um, but I know that he, he was a, a big name in the silent film era of the 1920s and, I guess, 1910s. Um, he's known as the father of the Western. I, I assume he um, did a lot of... Like, some like 800 films I think he was responsible for, but uh, Westerns were prominent among them. He built what you would call the first ever studio. What was it called? Inceville? Yes, which a was bit, in, a little bit cringy. I think the, so. His second film studio was in Culver City. The first one was slightly further outside of LA at the time. The first film studio burnt down uh, because basically it was a whole bunch of wooden sets on dry land. So a new, more bespoke, more permanent film studio was built in Culver City, where of course the Par Paramount lot is now located, not literally on the site of Inches Film Studio, but Culver City kind of came the big place where films were made because of what Thomas did. And yeah, he was he was a really, really, really big name. He essentially created the role of the film producer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was his decision. He, he, um, he was a director and an actor and I think a screenwriter. Um, he started directing in 1910. He probably also self-catered most of his own films. Well, he did, he did seem like the kind of guy. Um, and then eventually he sort of stepped back from the directing. He sort of he, he invented this new way of doing things, basically, where he would hand over the du directing duties to someone else and just sort of step back a bit and manage it uh, a bit more, sort of be, be a bit more of an overall manager. And the guy with the money behind everything, which is what these days we would call a producer, but um, he he basically um, was the first to do it. He. He liked making um, long films, which in the 1910s was one hour. Um, Americans didn't like, wouldn't stand for films that long in the in the 19, 1910s and 1920s. They had other things to do, fight in a world war, I guess, and yeah, dance except that the people who liked them on top yeah, of a flagpole. I remember the long films were popular in Europe, and that was where the mm. world war was actually occurring well yes i don't know. i mean what's actually quite fascinating about this was they used to measure films with respect not to time but to how many reels a film a film had so americans seem to like films that were at max around about two reels so anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes in length europeans they loved a five reeler they liked an hour-long film they wanted narrative they wanted character americans they just wanted action 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 Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he, he basically, by um, 
by the 1920s. He was uh, an old hand at this, knew, knew very much well what he was doing and realised that he could basically hand over the, the reins to a dire another director and just rely on the fact that his films were tightly scripted and the director would stick to the script. And then, you know, he was also um, the one uh, overseeing the editing of the film as well. So he could be assured that the film would turn out the way he wanted it to, even though uh, someone else may have been directing. Uh, to, towards the, in the early 1920s, his power was starting to wane a bit, apparently, as the as the studio system in Hollywood came up, and it was making harder for him to get actors and directors because that'll be signed to different studios and they have non compete clauses and anything. But well, he so was he technically was... an independent producer, mm. so he he existed outside of the studio system, which initially went really well for him because he was basically a work for hire man. But as the studio system locked down contracts for directors and actors, suddenly it turned out that he couldn't contract anyone to work with him. So he tried to create a production company, and that kind of fell apart. Randolph Hearst found out that he was in a bit of financial trouble and invited him on a weekend cruise, the story of which is what we're going to get into. Mm. Yes, so this is not the podcaster's guide to 1920s film producers, it's the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, and the conspiracy in this case is that Ince died just after his 44th birthday, I think. Wikipedia gives his birth year as 1880, and since he died in 1924 after his birthday, it would have been his 44th, although I've read some articles that say it was his 43rd and some articles that say it was his 42nd. Who the heck knows? But in well, his, actually, in his... the explanation here is that birth dates prior to the 20th well, yeah, century are, yeah. are pretty hard to put down because in some respects people's birth certificates were only issued after a person was born. Sometimes they were only issued after a person was baptised. Sometimes they were issued later in life because I need to kind of prove I exist. Could I have a document? When were you born? Well, I think I was born... Yeah, Back. let me ask my mother. Yeah. 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 So, so it was it the year out, of the big yeah. winter or whatever. Mm. Yeah, so it turns out these things are vague for the sheer fact that actually the idea of having a locked-down birth date is actually a relatively modern invention in Western society. Mm. But the point is, he was in his early to mid-40s, younger than the pair of us, um, and on the 19th of November, 1924, he died. That was a Wednesday. On the weekend, just before, he had been on a cruise. He'd been to a party on the yacht of William Randolph Hearst, the USS Oneida, um, off the coast of San Diego. Uh, the official version is that he uh, suffered a medical event on the ship and died of heart failure. But rumours spread that he had, in fact, been shot by Randolph Hearst himself, and all on the yacht was sworn to secrecy, an, act, an actual, honest-to-goodness, good old-fashioned conspiracy of silence. Now, why are we calling it The Cat's Meow, though? Because there's a film called The Cat's Meow, which stars Eddie Izzard as Charlie Chaplin, yep. and a whole bunch of other people playing a variety of roles, but of course our favourite, Carrie Yules, playing the murder victim himself. Thomasins himself, yes. Um, there was apparently there was a, uh, originally a play uh, by Stephen Peros, 
which was then adapted into the movie in 20, uh, 2001 by Peter Bogdanovich. Um, interesting, there's also another piece of fiction based on these rumoured events. Uh, William Randolph Hearst's niece, Patricia Hearst, wrote a novel in 1996 called Murder at San Simeon, uh, which is, is basically also a, a, another fictionalised account of the rumoured death, uh, the rumoured circumstances around the death of Thomas Ince. So I guess we should start with the official version before we start getting into the rumours and the conspiracies. Um, so here, are, here, is, here, is the, um, here is the timeline as it, is, it was reported in the official record. So uh, as you said, Ince had been doing a deal with Hearst. Um, I think Hearst Production Company was, was going to do a deal paying to use Ince's studio. Um, they were talking about it on Saturday the 15th of November, and because Sunday the 16th was Ince's birthday, Hearst basically said, hey, come, come, let, let, let's throw a party on my yacht. It'll be, a, it'll be grand. It'll be, th throw a big birthday party for you. And, um, and so they did. So this uh, party was going. Ince couldn't make it straight away. I think he had to catch a train down to San Diego. So by the time he got there, the party was in full swing. Guests included such names as Charlie Chaplin, who was, I mean, would it be fair to say he was the biggest name of the silent film era? I mean, you had Buster Keaton, you had... Harold Lloyd, you had Charlie Chaplin... I mean, he was incredibly famous at the biggest, that time. One of the biggest, yeah. yeah. And is probably the silent film star who a has survived the mm. most in popular culture, and b was the silent film star who successfully transitioned to talkies as well. Most of the mm. other silent film stars did not, in part because Chaplin was very, very good at vocal work, and it turned out that being a silent screen star didn't really require you to have a particularly good acting voice. Strangely mm. enough. Weirdly, yes. So as well as Chaplin, there was Marion Davies, a silent film actress and also um, Hearst's mistress at the time. Uh, there's a writer by the name of Eleanor Glynn, oh, uh, Marion Davies, played by Kirsten Dunst in the film, Eleanor Glynn, uh, who I think was Joanna Lumley, um, and another, another actress by the name of Sina Owen. Those are the only people who I think have been confirmed as having been on the yacht, apart from Inson Hearst himself. Um, the full guest list was never actually made public, and and for reasons we'll see, no one else has ever actually admitted to being there. There's uh, a woman by the name of Luella Parsons, who was a, a sort of a, a columnist and a screenwriter, uh, who will who will figure prominently uh, shortly. She may or may not have been there, but uh, will neither confirm nor deny. Actually, no, I think she does deny. But um, there's, well, I think I think she she did deny. I believe she's quite dead. Well, yes, yes. Um, so on the Saturday, oh, sorry, on the Sunday night, the guests celebrated Ince's birthday uh, with a with a big birthday meal, and um, after this, Ince suffered an acute bout of indigestion. Now, apparently, he had um, peptic ulcers, uh, and was under doctor's instructions to stay away from food that might inflame it. But it was his birthday, and he's a big Hollywood man who probably isn't going to let no one tell him what to do. So, um, yes, things such as the uh, salted almonds and champagne that were apparently um, available would have would have reacted badly with his ulcers. So um, he had had quite a bad reaction, apparently. No, I must have, I've. I've never understood this kind of weird exceptionalism people have around food, which is the, I know I'm not meant to eat this thing, but it's my birthday. But just this one. So of, no, yeah. if you can't eat the thing, you don't eat the thing. Biology doesn't go, oh, well, of course it's your birthday, so we won't have an adverse reaction this time. 
Mm. Um, but so, feeling uh, very unwell, Ince had to leave the party, went ashore, um, and took uh, a train back to... Um, well, he, he intended to take a train back to his home in Los Angeles, uh, but his condition worsened on the train, and he ended up having to get off at Del Mar in California. Actually, I let me just in, in, interject here, because this gets to an issue about the guest list. So one of the accounts I read said that he went ashore accompanied by one Dr. Goodman, a licensed, though non-practicing physician. That somewhat suggests if he went ashore with Dr. Goodman... Dr. Goodman was presumably one of the guests at the party, although I suppose it is possible he was summoned to the boat and then went, actually, no, this guy needs to be on shore immediately, and then came back with him. But it kind of speaks to the fact that because we don't know who was there, a whole bunch of names come up in these narratives, and you end up going... Where do they appear from? When mm. when were they there? Yes, no, uh, Dr. Goodman will be appearing later on in the story. Um, but yes, so he was definitely on the train. But yeah, as you say, whether he w- went from the boat to the train or whether he had been summoned there and then got on the train with him, we're not quite sure. Um, but so in Del Mar, Ince was taken to a hotel where they summoned a doctor and nurse and he was given medical treatment. You'd think, you'd, in this day and age, you'd think to a hospital, but possibly in 1929, uh, sorry, in 19... 19- um, 24. Maybe a, a private doctor in a hotel room would, would be uh, a better bet than a public hospital. Um, so uh, from uh, at that point, he summoned his own personal physician, a Dr. Ida Glasgow. Uh, he summoned his wife and his eldest son, William. And then uh, together, they all travelled back to his home, uh, where he unfortunately did not recover and died on the morning of Wednesday the 19th. Um, His physician, Dr. Glasgow, signed the death certificate himself, gave the course his heart failure. Apparently, um, his his son, William, would go on to become a doctor himself and would say that that he believed his dad's um, symptoms were, were closer to a thrombosis. I'm not quite sure what the difference between a thrombosis and a heart failure is, but neither of them are good for you. And that's the official version. Um, Ince uh, fell sick at the party on the boat, went home, died of heart failure. But 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 that's not the that's not the, the that, that, that's not the version that's been committed to history. Tell me about the rumours then. What's the what's the unofficial version? So the unofficial or rumoured version of what happened on the boat was that Randolph Hearst shot Thomas Inch, presumably because he confused Thomas Inch for Charlie Chaplin, who he suspected was having an affair with his mistress, Marion Davies. Mm. So there's the story people have sort of put together is that he suspected this affair had been going on, he possibly found the two of them together or confronted them for some reason, tried to shoot either or, or both of them. There was a big commotion, uh, Ince got involved, the gun went off, and Ince was killed by accident. Um, there have been other rumours, other versions of the rumours. Some people, Ince himself, made a pass at Davies and was, was shot in a jealous rage by Hearst, what have you. I haven't actually seen the cat's meow, but apparently their version uh, their version of events, um, th- there's a scene where uh, Ince and Davies are talking to each other and Ince has playfully put on Charlie Chaplin's hat, which happened to be lying around. And uh, Davies is talking to him about her relationship with Charlie Chaplin and with Hearst, and is talking. It says of Charlie Chaplin, "I don't love him anymore." Um, but Hearst, coming up behind them, sees Ince in the hat, thinks 
thinks Davies is talking to Chaplin, and so that when she says, I don't love him anymore, she's talking about Hurst. And so thinking that um, his girlfriend is busy talking to his rival, saying that she doesn't love him anymore, he, he shoots at what he thinks is Charlie Chaplin, only to discover that he's accidentally shot in the head. Um, this is all. I don't. You know. This. This is all supposition, basically. Um, I think a lot of it's based on the fact that Charlie Chaplin was a known philanderer, um, and and the idea of him having uh, an affair with with another man's woman, if you'd put it that way, uh, is, is certainly not um, unthinkable. Uh, Hurst was, I believe, known to have kept a gun on the boat, and was also known for being the sort of asshole who'd fly into a jealous rage over that sort of thing. Um, but however exactly it happened, the idea is that Ince was shot, um, and then everything was hushed up. Uh, the investigation into it was was squashed because Hurst was you know, one of the most powerful men in the country at the time, really. Um, and everyone present on the boat was sworn to secrecy. So it's an interesting story, but how did it start? Well, like most of these things, the origin of the story is a little bit hard to piece together. It seems to start with Chaplin's valet, and I'm going to use the British pronunciation here rather than the American one, given that Chaplin was British himself, a yes. man by the name of Tarachi Kono, who claims to have seen Inch being stretched off the yacht and said he was bleeding from a gunshot wound to the head. Now, it's also claimed and claimed here is very, very mm. important, claimed that the LA Times ran the headline movie producer shot on Hearst Yacht. Now, no copy of this headline is known to exist. As far as people claim, the headline only occurred in the morning edition of the newspaper, and this is back in the day when newspapers would have several editions throughout the day. Some newspapers would have as many as four editions, early morning, mid-morning, early afternoon and late afternoon. LA Times had at least two. It is claimed that the headline appears in the morning edition only, but as there are no surviving copies of it, this itself may be a rumour. But if it is a rumour, sorry, if, if, it is, if that story is true, there's at least one source on the boat who shot the story to someone on the mainland, which you might think suggests there might be something to the story. Or, as many other people claim, this headline may never have been printed. It may be mm. post facto. People go, oh, yeah, I, I heard something about, about Hearst being shot. Maybe there was a newspaper headline. Mm. I've also, uh, one of the articles I read in, in reading up on this said that um, Hearst's papers, because obviously, as you probably know, Hearst um, controlled a bunch of papers as well. He was the inventor um, of yellow journalism. Mm -hmm. um, so, so one of the articles I read claimed that Hearst's papers initially sort of ran a cover-up story that neglected to mention uh, Hearst's yacht at all. They claimed Ince had fallen ill at Hearst's ranch while visiting him there, and then from there been taken back to his home where he died surrounded by his family on Wednesday, uh, the, 11th, the morning of Wednesday the 19th. Um, and that this line uh, was dropped fairly quickly once numerous people began placing him on, on Hearst's yacht at the time instead. Um, 
So, but the, I, I've only read that once. So I'm not quite sure where that one came from either. But yeah, the, it's this 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 Toriichi Kono, uh, Japanese, as the name uh, may have suggested, um, who is a bit, a bit of a bit of an interesting history himself, from what I read. Uh, being a, a Japanese person um, at that time in America, he he uh, ended up getting stuck in an internment camp in World War Two and and all that sort of stuff. But uh, apparently there was. Uh, I, I don't know how things worked back then, but apparently. Um, uh, Japanese servants were the were, were the thing back then. That was that was the country where you got your um, home help from, and so there was sort of a network apparently of of Japanese house people around the place, and the rumor kind of spread through there. Um, apparently, the, the, you're going to hear the word apparently a lot, I think, as we carry on through this. Apparently, Eleanor Glynn, the writer uh, played by Joanna Lumley, um, is, is meant to have told someone. Uh, herself that everyone on the yacht had been sworn to secrecy and why would you be sworn to see you know, didn't say why but why would you be sworn to secrecy just Although because we a guy... will get into uh, a yes. very plausible rationale as to why that might be the case mm. um and so basically i mean hollywood as far as i'm aware is a, is a fairly gossipy town at the best of times and um these these rumors started to spread all over the place um, to the point that the San Diego district attorney felt uh, compelled to actually open an investigation into it. And of course, don't forget, Ince, Ince was still a big name. His power may have been on the wane, but he was a uh, Well, and also his power might have man. been on the wane, but because he was associated with Hearst, there might have been a feeling his power was about to rebound. Mm. Because Hearst mm. being basically the richest man in America... If it turns out that Hearst is going to bankroll Ince in a new production company, then his power may have been waning, but it might be about to wax very suddenly. Mm. Uh, so, the, so the DA did conduct an investigation, but um, not much of an investigation, as it turned out. So that uh, Dr. Goodman, who we mentioned before, this man, Dr. Daniel Goodman, um, he gave a statement to the DA that he had been on the train with Ince on his way to Del Mar, that he saw Ince suffering from chest pains, um, and that apparently Ince had, who, who had... Um, Apparently, been trying to keep this this condition of his a little bit quiet, but supposedly confided in in Doctor Goodman that he had been. Th this wasn't the first time that he had had these sort of um, attacks before, um, and apparently that, that 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 seemed to settle the case as far as the DA was concerned. Um, I've heard a couple of the things I mentioned. Uh, I've I've read mentioned that um, Goodman actually worked for Hearst was was a, was a Hearst employee, which could explain. Um, if he had been on the yacht or if Hearst had summoned him onto the scene to, to accompany um, Ince in the first place. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of it. Nobody else was asked to give a statement. Certainly no one, no one else had been on the yacht. Um, and that was it. This DA said, oh, you're a doctor. Your word's good enough for me. Um, you say he was on the train suffering from, from heart troubles. And then his other doctor said he died of heart failure. Well, that's a case closed to me. Um, complicating the investigation a bit more. Ince's body was cremated um, soon after his death, so there was no chance for any sort of an autopsy. Apparently, um, he and his wife were theosophists. Do theosophists, are they, are, are they cremation people? Was that part of the theosophist credo? I wasn't aware that theosophy was so keen on cremation, but then again, it could also just be a particular aspect of theosophy as practiced in the US. I actually don't know much about the burial practices of no. theosophists. 
I mean, I know, no, I, I, I know Catholics in that day, 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 day and age definitely could not be cremated because of the notion of bodily resurrection in the end times. But yeah, theosophy don't actually know. I feel, I feel no. I should, but I don't. No, I, I just read uh, he and his wife with with theosophists who believed in cremation. I don't know. If, maybe it's just that not not that being a theosophist makes you believe in cremation, but it just means that they weren't Catholic and therefore were allowed to be cremated. But apparently, yeah, this wasn't. Apparently, that that um, that that sinister they had arranged uh, for him to be cremated well before he died, which is to say, they arranged well before he died. For him to be cremated, they did. They, they they weren't wanting him to be cremated a long time before he died because that wouldn't really. It would be a short time before you died. It I'm would also. Sure it would also change the story quite remarkably. It would, yes, yes. He did. He wasn't just murdered. He was then burnt to death. Burnt to death. Yes. Um. But 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 here here is the here is the main wrinkle. Uh, it's important to remember this is 1929 we're talking about, and what was going on in 1929? Prohibition, baby! Prohibition. Prohibition. Alcohol was illegal. Um, of I course, also, Josh, I, I do want to also point out, we did actually say he died in the 19th of November, 1924. So it can't 24. have been 1929. Otherwise, uh, we're saying that sorry, the train so the journey... 19th. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The... Otherwise, we're saying that the train journey he took between San Diego and Del Mar literally took five years. Took five which, years, yes, no, sorry, Which is actually a my... very, very prolonged death if it's mm. if it's peptic ulcers leading to heart failure. I'm getting my four, my, my 1924s and my 19th of November's mixed up. Yes, no, 1924. Nevertheless, even in 1929, prohibition was still in effect. Now, I mean, we all kind of know that those sorts of laws don't really apply to society's upper classes, but um, Hurst himself apparently was not a fan of alcohol and would sort of allow guests at his place to maybe have a drink or two, but if you started hitting the sauce too hard, you'd be, you'd be out on your ear. Um, but nevertheless, if, if there were to be an investigation into this presumably boozy party on Hearst's private yacht, uh, and uh, as you remember, apparently one of the things that set Inces Ulcers off was drinking champagne, um, so there was the potential for some rich and powerful people to, to get into a bit of trouble if anyone had looked too hard into this investigation. And there's also the potentiality that there are certain people who were claiming to be teetotalers or claiming to be against the drinking of alcohol who turned out to be at a party where not only alcohol is being drunk, but where they were drinking said drunk alcohol. So mm. it could you you might want to go look. Don't look into this too deeply because there are reputations on the line in a variety of different ways. Mm. So ba basically, the point of this is to say that you don't actually need to to, to imagine a, a murder being covered up to come up with the reason for why this information uh, why this investigation was was squashed post haste. Um, when you have the reputations of a, a bunch of, of society's most powerful people on the line, um, it's entirely uh, believable that pressure would have been brought to bear to make sure this investigation was concluded as quickly as possible and, and paying as little attention to what might have gone on on the yacht. Yeah, so this possible. is a case where you might say, look, we can definitely say there was a conspiracy of silence here, but it's not necessarily related to covering up a murder. It's a conspiracy to cover up behaviour which was considered to be unbecoming to the citizen of 1924, or indeed 1929. 
Mm. But on the side of the rumours, though, we get into the idea that certain people were paid off to keep their science, uh, keep their silence. To keep their science? Like they, they, they're welcome to keep their science, but uh, their silence was what Hurst was most interested in. So uh, you, I mentioned before Luella Parsons, played by Jennifer Tilly, I think, in The Cat's Meow. Um, she, uh, subsequent to this affair, um, Parsons was given a lifetime contract with Hearst's publications, and Hearst expanded her syndica- syndication more widely across the country, um, which is, which is uh, a lot of people have, have sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge suggested that this was her payoff. This was Hearst buying her silence by um, uh, giving her a bunch more money and... Uh, uh, furthering her writing career. Now, and Parsons... that's because, even though she claimed she wasn't on the yacht, there were eyewitnesses that yes. said that she was definitely there. Now, this isn't mm. a payoff, presumably, to cover up the fact she was on the yacht. It's presumably a payoff saying, well, if you were on the yacht and you saw certain things that were going on on the yacht, then if I give you some money and extend your syndication, maybe you won't talk about some of the things you saw? Because once again, you may not be concerned about covering up a murder. You might be concerned about certain things happened on that yacht that, you know, when they happen at sea, they should definitely stay at sea. Mm. And yet, on the other side um, of the argument, some people say that, well, actually, her her contract, uh, this lifetime contract, had been signed well before the night of the party. It was it was already a done deal, and Hurst uh, looked on her favourably, not because she uh, kept her mouth shut about what happened on board his yacht, but because she had been a, a long been a champion of Marion Davies' films and had given them uh, glowing write ups in her films. Isn't this a plot point in Citizen Kane? Uh, well, we'll be getting to Citizen Kane, but it would not surprise me. I mean, it is it is a plot point in, in Citizen Good, Kane. As someone who has watched Citizen Kane probably more than a dozen times, it's very definitely a plot point in Citizen Kane. Uh, that that he paid off a reporter to keep quiet about stuff. Yes, because in Citizen Kane, the mistress is put forward as being an opera singer. It turns out she can't sing particularly well. But Charles Foster Kane pays columnists to give her rave reviews. Right. Uh, and then as well as that, um, Hearst supposedly paid off the mortgage on Thomas Ince's apartment in Hollywood and gave his wife, Nell Ince, a trust fund when she went to Europe at some stage. The thing is, I can see that as being plausible without there being a murder, because you might go... Yes, um, he was, he was yeah, it's, uh, I mean, your husband, he was a friend. Yeah, but also your husband attended a birthday party on my yacht where he ate food he wasn't meant to. I kind of feel as if that might be slightly my fault. I mean, I didn't kill the man, but at the same time, I also allowed him to eat food that led to his death, so maybe I'll just be very nice to you in the hope that you aren't going to then bring this up at every single social event you attend. Mm. Now, as I say, lots of people would deny ever being there. No no one really wanted to talk about it. the people who we definitely know were involved certainly have never been keen to talk about it. Hearst himself, people had said that sort of 
um, mentioning Thomas Ince's name around uh, around uh, William Randolph Hearst was a good way to sort of make him go white as a sheet that he had, he he wouldn't countenance anyone talking about Ince in his presence. Uh, certainly didn't talk about it much at the time. Years after the fact, he supposedly said to a reporter, uh, "Not only am I innocent of this Ince murder, but so is everybody else." I.e., there was no murder. Either that, or 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 God killed Thomas Ince. Well, yeah, no, possibly. No mortal is responsible. No mortal man. <laughs> yes, uh, but Nell Ince's wife was apparently quite frustrated by these rumours. Um, a friend of hers by the name of Adela Rogers St. Johns uh, wrote her autobiography called The Honeycomb, and in that she writes about Mrs. Ince saying, "Do you think I would have done nothing, even if I suspected that my husband had been victim of foul play on anyone's part?" So apparently she was very much, you know, look, he was my husband, for goodness sake. He was the man I loved, the father of my children. Are you, you going to tell me I'd just go quietly uh, and take a payoff if he'd been murdered in cold, well, probably not in cold blood, but murdered by accident, presumably. I don't, you know, child, Hurst, Hurst or no Hurst. Yeah, it's the death of her husband, and she's very much. She was apparently kind of indignant at the idea that she would have taken hush money to overlook the fact that her husband had been murdered. Ah, but Estings, Estings, you said these graces, you overlook the most obvious implication. Of she was Nelly on the yacht and killed him. Precisely, Hastings. Yes. She is the killer. No, apparently she wasn't on the yacht, but who knows? We don't know. It could be anything. Well, the guest list. We do not have a complete list. We must return back to the yacht Hastings and talk to the purser to find out exactly who and who was not on board the boat. Now, apparently the, the yacht was sold for scrap metal in Canada quite a long time ago. Then so we anyway. must build a time machine Hastings and travel back in time and purchase the yacht ourselves and then destroy mm. it. Could be, could be. Also, I am turning into this German. I do not know what is going on. It's, it's German, yeah. It's not, not, not particularly Belgian. Uh, at the end there, but that's okay. Ah, well, you know, Poirot is simply a, a, a stereotype of a, of a foreigner. Exactly. There is nothing particularly Belgian He's a man of the him. world. His, his accent wanders, I'm sure. Um, so so that's, we've got the investigation. Uh, we've got the, the, the supposed payoffs. We've got the dials. The only other detail that seems relevant is that apparently, um, as we said, it's big name, um, and so his death was a big deal, and so his funeral was a big deal. And uh, apparently the, the LA Times, when they wrote about Ince's funeral, one of the things they mentioned was that his body was displayed in an open casket for an hour um, so that anybody could come in and pay their respects to him. And you would think that if he'd had a bullet wound in his head and was displayed in an open casket, someone might have noticed that and remarked upon it. Um, and yet nobody ever did. Although he sings so, once again, he worked for the film industry, maybe the best makeup artist in the world. Mm. Although that being said, the problem is we kind of know what makeup artistry looked like back in 1924, and it probably yeah. wasn't sufficient to make a head wound just disappear without well, yes. people going, that looks a bit weird. Yes, especially, let's not forget 1924, we're talking about black and white films, and the sort of makeup you wear to look good on black and white film looks quite bizarre in real life. From the pictures I've seen. Um, so that's that's a lot of the evidence, but of course I said I said Citizen Kane. We can't talk about Hearst without mentioning Citizen Kane. So and also with me. Seen... Rosebud. Exactly. So you have seen Citizen Kane. Is there a scene in Citizen Kane where Charles Foster Kane shoots someone on a yacht and then pays people to be quiet about it? 
No, although apparently Orson Welles did write a scene of that type, it was just never filmed. So this was a room. So it's well known that Citizen Kane is essentially a story which amalgamates a bunch of different famous rich people at the time. The primary one that Charles Foster Kane is based upon is, of course, Randolph Hearst. And that's why you get you you get a mistress character like Marion Davies. It's why Charles Foster Kane ends up running a newspaper empire. It's why there's a very coded joke about the fact that Charles Foster Kane basically has set up a war in South America to sell newspapers, given that it's, it's well attested to that Randolph Hearst was basically going, you get, you get me the pictures, I'll supply you the war. And so there's one scene that was scripted but never shot in which it's referenced that maybe Charles Foster Kane was responsible for the death of a lover of the Marion Davies an analogue. But Orson Welles ended up going, this doesn't really fit the characterization of Charles Foster Kane, because despite the fact that Citizen Kane is kind of a coded story of Randolph Hearst, and despite the fact that Randolph Hearst hated Citizen Kane and essentially ended Orson Welles' directing career because of it, the film's actually quite sympathetic to Charles Foster Kane. And so Orson Welles went, look, but I can't make my main character look like a murderer that doesn't fit the story I'm trying to tell. So it was scripted, but never shot. That being said, when Orson Welles was interviewed about this potential scene, Orson Welles said, look, I could have included it in the film because what was Randolph Hearst ever going to do? I mean, he could never react to a scene of this kind because then he'd have to confirm or deny being involved in the murder, and of course that was never going to work out for him. He would never have dared to admit it was him. Mm. Yeah, so part of the reason why Peter Bogdanovich directed The Cat's Meow is that he had spoken to Orson Welles himself um, about this rumour. Um, he first heard the rumour when he was interviewing Welles um, in the late 60s, um, so Wells apparently had heard the rumour from Marion Davies's nephew, um, and Peter Bogdanovich then went and talked to the nephew and, and got him to, to, uh, to tell him the story as well. Um, and so there is a line, uh, there's a book uh, of the, the collected interviews of Peter Bogdanovich interviewing Orson Wells, which features the, the exchange where Wells says, in the original script, we had a scene based on a notorious thing Hearst had done, which I still cannot repeat for publication, and I cut it out because I thought it hurt the film and wasn't in keeping with Kane's character. If I'd kept it in, I would have had no trouble with Hearst. He wouldn't have dared admit it was him. And Bogdanovich asked, did you shoot the scene? And Wells said, no, I didn't. I decided against it. If I kept it in, I would have bought silence for myself forever. Which reminds me a bit of, you've heard of the small penis defence? Isn't that where survival? you take your small penis and you fend off attackers by gyrating? Actually, I'm, I'm doing it physically on, on camera here. You, gy yeah. you gyrate in front of them, making your small penis swing side to side? 
No, there's the idea that if, you, if you're wanting to send someone up by creating a fictional character based on them, you should also give that character uh, something particularly, make something, there's something particularly undesirable about them, like having a very small penis. And that way, the person who you're sending up won't want to sue you for libel, because then they'll have to say, hey, that person with the tiny penis that you're talking about, that's me. Uh, there was one particular case, I forget the exact details, but a guy wrote a play and included um, as a character a guy that was obviously based on someone he didn't like, but he also made this character a pedophile or a sex abuser or something, so that the guy couldn't say, oh, that character's obviously me. Well, that character's a pedophile. Are you a pedophile? Obviously not. Well, then obviously it's not based on you. seems like a, it's maybe not exactly this sort of thing in, in that... It's, it would be including a thing that the guy was rumoured to have done, um, but but in the knowledge that because he denied it, you could happily say it, and he couldn't do a thing, because to um, to to get angry about it would suggest that it was true. Yes, this is the idea of the grotesque caricature. If you give someone some kind of grotesquery, people are less likely to go, "That's me." Yes. Uh, if it is me, I have to then explain that I don't have feature X, which makes me grotesque. Mm. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. Mm. So there you go. That's the that's the story of the death of Thomas Ancient, uh, Ancients, who, I mean, it's a little bit a little bit sad, I suppose, that these days he's only really remembered as that guy that Hurst may or may not have shot when, in his day, he was um, incredibly uh, influential and, and I guess... If given that he's the inventor of of the concept of a movie producer, his influence is still felt to this very day. In terms of the actual plausibility of it, I mean, it, it basically it's all just gossip. Like there is no hard evidence anyway. We have official testimony, and then we have sort of hushed up gossipy testimony. But I don't really say that you could um, you could say that the case is, uh, is is even particularly strong in terms of the rumored version. It just makes for a better story. There's no nobody's made a movie about Ince dying of indigestion in his own bed at home. No, although what I do think is interesting is that actually, no matter what the story is, we can still talk about there being a conspiracy to cover something mm. that happened on that yacht. It doesn't seem particularly plausible that the conspiracy is to cover up a murder. But it does seem quite plausible to think the conspiracy was to cover up behaviour on the yacht that would have got a lot of people into trouble at that time. Yeah, I mean, I assume the the, the, the idea would have been that, yes, let's go, let's, let's, let's all get wasted and have a big party on the yacht, and then on Monday morning we'll all go, go our separate ways and never speak of it, and that'll be the end of it. And it was just the... Uh, uh, it was bad luck for them that unfortunately a, a notable personage ended up dying in connection with it and, and um, people paid attention to what these rich people were up to on their private yacht. But they would have got away with it all if it hadn't been for those... For those salted almonds. Almonds and, and, and champagne, yep. <laughs> the the most bourgeois ver version of a Scooby-Doo story mm. of all time. And I would have got away yes. with it too if it hadn't been for those, for those salted almonds and flutes of champagne. Mm. So that's the story of the cat's meow. Um, now, meow. interestingly enough, interestingly enough, and Em doesn't know this, but when I was talking with my wife earlier this week about, uh, I, I, I sort of mentioned to her, oh, Em and I are going to be talking about that to the time a famous person got killed on a yacht. And my wife's immediate response was, oh, you're talking about Natalie Wood. And I'm like, who? And she's, was she, didn't she, wasn't she someone who died on a yacht and Christopher Walken was there or something? Um, and, and wouldn't you know it, 
I then the next day opened my um, opened opened our notes to see that M, entirely unbeknownst to me, had suggested for the content of this week's bonus episode. Why don't we talk about Natalie Wood? Dun so we dun dun. Actually, no. So we have we have we have, we have, a have an actual dun dun dun. Yes, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Yes, so our patrons get not one but two mysterious celebrity deaths on a yacht this week. Uh, not the same yacht, on different yachts. Although, wouldn't um, it have been great if it had been the same yacht? Mm, the Curse of the Oneida, whatever it was called. In fact, wouldn't it be great if it turned out that elements of the Oneida turned up on the yacht mm. of the Splendor? Mm. I'm, I'm sensing a series. Oh, yes, it, it, it's a prequel to Ghost Ship. Um, but yeah, so uh, our, our bonus episode this week, we'll be talking um, about the death of Natalie Wood. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about that, I, mean, I suppose you could look it up on Wikipedia, but don't do that. Listen into our bonus episode. And if you want to listen into our bonus episode, you're going to have to be a patron. And if you are a patron, then, then all is right with the world and you're one of um, God's chosen people. But, or our chosen people, I suppose you self-select to become a patron, don't you? But you know what I mean. Um, and if you'd like to become a patron, you, you could simply go to Patreon.com and look for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy um, and sign yourself up. And then you too can, can see one of us almost certainly doing a Christopher Walken impression um, as we talk about the mysterious death of Natalie Wood. Although whenever I try to do a Christopher Walken impression, I end up doing a William Shatner impression instead. No, I mean, yeah, I mean the main impression I know of is is the an impression of Jay Moore doing an impression of Christopher Walken. Although then you can watch the uh, what was the movie they were in, Suicide Kings, where if you watch the the um, the bonus features behind the scenes stuff, there's an interview with Christopher Walken where he does an impression of Jay Moore doing an impression of Christopher Walken, which is quite quite marvelous. Um, but anyway. That's the end of things for this uh, main episode, where we're going to go off and record the bonus one, but uh, the rest of you are free to go about your day, uh, and I think I will simply uh, call things to a close in the traditional way by saying goodbye. Well, so I Hastings will say bonjour, mon ami. Isn't that French? Oh, but that's what Belgians speak, so I guess that's okay. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Denter. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.